Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today I'm talking to Dr. Ryan Weber about his book, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2018, called Cosmopolitanism and Transatlantic Circles in Music and Literature. In this book, Weber grapples with two big ideas that are important not only to the time period he primarily focuses on, which is the turn of the 20th century but also to musical scholarship in general, and those ideas are cosmopolitanism and nationalism. Using the music and ideas of Edvard Grieg, Edward McDowell, and Percy Granger as his lens, Weber finds unexpected connections between these two concepts, which are often presented as being at odds with one another, and in the process complicates overly simplistic analyses of the so-called nationalism of these composers from the musical periphery. Welcome, Ryan. It is so great to have you here with me today. Hi, Kristen. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Where did you get the idea for this book from? Well, the idea is, of course, one that's been percolating for a long time. Um, I've always been interested in intersections and the way that ideas move around the globe. That's something that was always interesting to me as a performer. Uh, to see those ideas. And of course, it's something that as performers, we're acutely aware of when we're performing, we can see influence. But tracing the history of ideas, of course, um, not within canons, but between canons of literature has been really difficult, um, at least for some of the, the research projects in which I've been engaged. And I've always been fascinated too by a transdisciplinary influence that of course, has always been there since the beginning of music, practically. But the way in which, uh, especially over the course of the 19th century, that there is this cross-pollination between literature and music that seemed to be really special. And another area of interest uh, to me is this weird category of, of Nordicism and the way that people have viewed this both within the Nordic countries and beyond. 
So it just seemed to fall into place that I would attempt to write a book that would bring all of these things together, tracing the history of ideas, the way in which Nordicism has served as a point of, a focal point really, of identity, uh, both in Europe and America, and then try to point out the congruities and also the things that don't line up between literature and music. These big ideas that you're talking about, cosmopolitanism, nationalism, universalism, modernism, all those ideas I find often have rather idiosyncratic meanings uh, when a particular author uses them. So I thought we could start off this interview with just defining these two basic terms that you're so interested in, cosmopolitanism and nationalism. Yes. Um Boy, that is that is really the challenge, right? To define cosmopolitanism and to define nationalism. I would say that in this book, I try actually not to define them, but I try to gather evidence by which different people have defined these isms over time. And a real challenge is that our vocabulary a lot of times is limited. And we have, of course, a lot of preconceptions when it comes to both terms, both terms, uh, both movements have been studied by scholars in so many different disciplines, um, and therefore that brings a lot of baggage. So I've, I actually tried to sift through a, a lot of the definitions, a lot of the different concepts that are out there. And for the most part, I try to hold each composer or each composer and literary pair uh, up to the light to see what aspects of circulating definitions fit and which ones don't. So another ism that is I tease throughout the book, which is equally as complicated, is that of universalism and the connections between nationalism and universalism and cosmopolitanism and universalism. And if anything, I try to juxtapose these different case studies uh, as a way to show the ways in which composers and critics alike have used these terms, but for very, very different means. And in some cases, we, we can look at the intersection of Grieg and Granger and see how they're using cosmopolitan, uh, at least around 1905, 1906, as a term that's meant almost in a, a humanitarian sense, as a way of bringing people together, as a way of including people. But it's very, very clear over the course of a lifespan like um, Granger, uh, who features heavily in the book, that cosmopolitanism is used to mean something very different and that it actually entails more exclusion than it does inclusion. So I've tried to tease these out, and in, in doing so, really tried to give some sort of a lifespan of these terms and how composers have used these terms, even if they've used them in a very fixed sense, to show the fluid nature of these terms and to show how something like cosmopolitanism can be used to show an expansion but also a contraction of identities, both on the part of the performer and uh, on the part of those people who are listening to their works or reading their essays in many cases. Besides talking about music, the other thing that you do is connect music and literature in this book, um, not only through uh, your composers who all were interested in literature of the time period and were, were influenced by literature, but also talking about literary scholarship as well as something that can be helpful to musicologists. Why did you decide that you needed to link these two things, music and literature, in this book? Sure. I mean, that's it's a fascinating topic. And of course, the marriage of, of uh, 
music and words is timeless, as I already said. And it's one thing, of course, in texted compositions like leader or opera that has a very specific type of history and a very specific type of partnership. And uh, it's a different type of partnership to say, of course, that a composer knows a writer or that a composer um, simply read this writer. And to what extent, if any, do those ideas find their way into a composition? I mean, that's kind of dangerous territory for a scholar. It's not always very easy to, to prove causality. So we're left in this weird uh, kind of soup of correlation. And I, I try to, especially for especially when it comes to an issue like cosmopolitanism, I try to tease out what I see are the real causal links between composers and the literary folks that influence them. Because I do have a sense, and I think this comes out throughout the book, that a lot of musicians felt like they were behind. Now, of course, that's a subjective term to be behind in anything. But that music of course, was was so deeply enshrined in, in questions of nationalism that a lot of people like Grieg were, were really left without models in, in the musical world of what cosmopolitanism might look like. And that's why Grieg uses a term like experiment. And I think he is someone who died not quite realizing his aspiration. So given the absence of models, which is just absolutely fundamental to any composer to have those models, either to accept or to reject them, they force them to turn to literature and, and to rely and really lean on literature in a different way, uh, especially by the time we get to the 1880s and the 1890s. By that time, Writers in both continents have been dealing with this issue of cosmopolitanism. They've been really trying to take these circulating anxieties, ambient fear about a number of issues, and they they really, I, I think, um, did they kind of beat a lot of these musicians to, uh, to the to the punchline here? In that, let's try to create a style that encapsulates these anxieties. Let's try to create a style that questions our identities, and that doesn't compartmentalize the way so many national styles did. Um, in, in in reality, or perhaps just assumed. So. I think that the relationship between the different composers and writers I talk about is a necessarily a different one here in that they're trying to create an analog for processes that they see first occurring in music. And that, I think, is a challenge for Grieg, someone who tried in every one of his songs a different type of analog. But, of course, the distance between the written word and your harmonic syntax is, is a sometimes a, a really extensive one. Uh, again, you don't always have that really close reading between the text and uh, the harmonic language the way you would in Wagner, for instance. So there, there's definitely a relationship there, but trying to understand what that relationship might be is difficult, especially when it differs be- from composer to composer and definitely between piece to piece. And that, I think, is the challenge, especially with someone like Granger, who uses the word cosmopolitanism for more than five decades, but clearly uses it for a very different, or to, to, to denote a very different set of terms and relationships. Um, especially for someone like that, Granger, who quoted Whitman liberally throughout his whole life, he clearly um, wanted to advance a certain uh, agenda by turning to these literary figures. So that's basically what I was trying to tease out here is the way in which composers 
had different agendas. They were both political and motivated otherwise, but also the way in which I think they all, the commonality was that they all felt this necessity to look to literature as a guide for moving forward and how we might break out of the nationalist mold when it comes to musical aesthetics. Despite the fact that you are engaging with really big ideas, um, you do it by uh, focusing on a small number of composers. So that's Edvard Grieg, Percy Granger, and Edward McDowell. I'm wondering why choose those men in particular? And secondly, why choose this time period, this turn of the 20th century period? Because, of course, these ideas are ones that are important to music and musical scholarship all through the 19th century, 20th century, into today. So why these three composers and why that particular time period? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and it's one that I'm still fascinated by. Um, it's one in which there are, there are gentle points of touch points, really, between these composers. There, we have examples, of course, of um, letters that they exchanged I was really, as we would for any evidence, right? We're looking for letters. We're looking for some sort of correspondence to see what types of connections. When you're looking at composers like these and writers, their literary colleagues, the associations are just enormous. They they wrote to so many people. So, again, sifting through that is tough, and it's it's certainly the case that I have been highly selective in who I chose and. Um, the connections that I wanted to show. Uh, by no means was I trying to be holistic even and trying to trace any one composer's career, but that was the point. The point was to see, okay, we have these touch points. There's certainly some continuities, but the way in which their careers overlapped, I was really fascinated by, which is to say, while Grieg and McDowell were more or less contemporaries, they were not uh, people who ever met face-to-face. So they did not have that opportunity, and both were very moved by this question of uh, kind of a transatlantic space for expression. So th- I was fascinated by that, and then, of course, I was fascinated by what does a composer do with another composer's legacy? How might that be manipulated? So we have a few very brief, brief um, touch points between Grieg and Granger. And of course, they did meet. I mean, this has been really a famous point of inter- intersection here. Um, Granger did meet Grieg at his house. We know that. Uh, unfortunately, their period of correspondence was very brief, owing to Grieg's passing in 1907. But that carries on or opens the door to another set of relationships that Granger will develop in Grieg's absence. And that's the way in which he is going to manipulate um, the way in which Grieg was received. And he's going to manipulate Grieg's understanding of cosmopolitanism. And you have Grieg, who is at a point in his career in 1906, where he is so eager, I think, to find someone to carry on the mantle of cosmopolitanism, having really become so upset with things that he saw in his own country. So that turn of the century era, of course, just being the turn of the century, as many scholars have already noted, can lead to anxieties and and certainly can create a special sense of identity and shared worries and hopes. But it also was one that kind of at this point now, it was a period where a lot of composers became exacerbated by traditions, by 
um, certainly the reception of audiences that had put them into boxes that they felt, I think, had basically outlived their lifespan. So it was this period of trying to create new boxes or trying to dismantle old boxes, of trying to, I think, in almost an exacerbated way, move the audience's mind beyond this local provincial way of thinking about music and thinking about identity, which goes back to your previous question about literature. It was this way to to get beyond thinking of national schools and, and to try to tie things together. So it makes the international aspect of their style much more of a prerequisite. So it's this perfect recipe of growing tired with existing mediums, growing tired with things like harmonic language, growing tired of tensions in their own countries, and looking for something else. But the question is, well, what is that thing? What am I looking for? And I think someone like Grieg and McDowell were not always quite clear as to what that was. Uh, they knew what it wasn't. They knew what they they wanted it, what, what it shouldn't be. Um, whereas Granger is the opposite. That's clearly an inversion of the previous two, where he very quickly knows what he wants, and that is to celebrate uh, his idea of a Nordic or pan-Scandinavian identity above all others. So it's just that it's this confluence of events and this confluence of anxieties shared between two continents that drove me to look at them side by side in perhaps a little bit different way. So you've spoken about why you chose Grieg, McDowell, and Granger, but another issue that you bring up in the book is that these three men are also from the musical periphery. You know, they are not canonical composers. They aren't from Germany. So why did you decide that it was important to bring in composers that are from the musical periphery? That's a great point. And I I guess it's perhaps a a bit funny at this point to even say that Grieg is in the periphery. I mean, he's an accepted composer. But what I wanted to question is why these composers uh, were not given the same status as others, because it's something that deeply occupied them. Um, And in some cases, like Grieg, the reason for which he became famous was not the reason that he necessarily wanted. And I think that is certainly an issue for all of those. And that's an interesting counterpoint with Granger, who was yearning to be famous. So you have a, a very different, uh, going back to your question here about, you know, what was my motivation for looking at them? Certainly someone at the end of his career had different motivations and different concepts of what it meant to be on the periphery, um, clearly, than someone like Granger. And, and also, got me questioning, what does it mean to be on the periphery? I mean, someone who has an honorary doctorate from Oxford is not a minor force then or now. So these are people that were well-known in their own time, yet still um, felt like they did not achieve something. And what was it that they didn't achieve? So that brings up this paradox of how certain identities and groups form in society. And it goes without saying, to us anyway, that there is no such thing as a Nordic, a singular Nordic identity. It's completely constructed, right? Just like we construct any other identity for ourselves. And it's also possible that it is the very ambiguity of terms like Nordic, which is to say sometimes it can be used to evoke a homogeneous concept and other times a heterogeneous concept. It's that ambiguity that two people can use that in conversation. 
And of course, we can expand that out. Thousands, millions of people can use those same terms, but mean something very different at the same time. So part of what I was trying to interrogate is what did it mean for them to be on the periphery, even if kind of on paper, they were clearly successful? Um, What was it that they were trying to prove? And a big part of that, although for different reasons, is how we connect local culture with national culture and how the national culture fits with some sort of global culture. And that brings us up uh, this issue of universalism again. And what does it mean to allow for universal participation of many different cultures? And how is that different from those composers that were seeking to create um, a universal circulation of only a few specific traits, as we know so well, uh, many people were doing with Wagner, making that a surrogate for some sort of universality. So I think in this case, this periphery was uh, an experiential reaction to the way in which other voices were not being led into the discourse. Your analysis of Grieg, I found particularly interesting because I always knew him as the composer that ticks the box of Norwegian nationalism, right? You know how it is when you're teaching music history, right? In 19th century music, it's like, okay, there's, there's uh, German music that's universal. (laughs) And then, and then, then you just go through every country and there's one composer that gets to be the national composer from that country. Yep. You know, Dvorak is Bohemian, et cetera. So Grieg was the national, was the Norwegian composer. And yet what I learned from your book was that he uh, probably would have been horrified by that. And, um, you know, and, and really didn't want, it was, was not interested in that kind of strong national, uh, national identity. And also you've really provided some really interesting musical analyses of Greg's music as well, where he's using folk songs, but you're arguing not in a nationalist manner. So I had sort of two questions about that. Um, and the first was, can you expound a bit upon Grieg as not that nationalist composer? And, you know, what do you see in Grieg's own ideas and in his music that um, pushes against that narrative? And also, how do you think it happened that he becomes the, the Norwegian composer uh, in the music history narrative? Sure. Uh, both of those are, are fascinating questions. I think I came about the problem, the problem um, by thinking that there is nothing insignificant in a composer's oeuvre and that the failures are just as important as the successes and whatever defines a success and a failure. And I think for a long time, just focusing on Greed for the moment, scholars were willing to consciously or unconsciously kind of follow the critic's lead with, um, these are Grieg's masterpieces. He's a well-known celebrity from Norway at a time when Norway, to be very clear, did not have a lot of celebrities in the world of music. Um, so it fulfilled a certain type of nationalist need. Um, Norway itself was fighting for its own independence, uh, which it finally achieved in 1905. So there's also this deeply um, embedded political dimension to this as well, as there always is in in music. And many scholars have commented on that. Um, But then we look at something like 
what happens after a composer writes a monumental work like Hautessa? And Dan Grimley, I think, has written about this better than anybody on the planet. And the way in which Grieg enshrined a national and universal identity. But like a great writer, a composer is not just going to reveal one side of his or her personality at any given time. A work can be national and international at the same time. But of course, uh, audiences are going to see what they want because the needs of the audience might be very different than the needs of the composer. And I think that is definitely the case uh, for Grieg in 1905, who was really struggling to to create a path for himself. So once you create, once he publishes How Tussa, I think he was a little bit lost as to say, where am I going to go now with my leader, with, with this song? And as I point out, he, he turns to Benzon, a Danish poet, uh, who was well-known in that time. He was certainly in the, the very uh, elite intellectual circles, but he was um, really, um, I think he took a lot of heat, I know for sure, from critics at that time, but also scholars uh, over the, the 20th and even in the 21st century have kind of said, oh, yeah, well, you know, and then then you have these works, but they don't compare to these masterpieces of nationalism. And we knowingly or unknowingly perpetuate narratives that the composer himself was trying to undermine. And I think that's just the problem of musicology is that we, we write books and, and articles on the successes and we problematize those successes and we've gotten really good, I think, at doing that. But those things that even achieve minimal success are really important, especially for someone like Grieg, who didn't need to be doing this, who didn't need financial resources or anything like this. And certainly if he needed money, this was not how he was going to go about doing that. So for me, that that says something that there is deep meaning in what's going on here in the first few years of 1900, that a composer like Grieg could go to a state dinner and praise all of uh, people from Bergen and uh, praise his own fellow countrymen and women, and then go back to his hut and write pieces that deal with much more expansive vistas. Something else is going on there. And there's this degree of multidimensionality that is very difficult to bring to the surface, especially after you have decades of writing that focus on the national. Uh, And as I've said, Den Grimley does this better than anyone I know and shows how these devices become structural. But the problem for someone like Grieg is that by virtue of his lifespan, the cosmopolitan is, is difficult to track. It's difficult to trace, even though he writes about this from an early age. And his works that are written uh, around 1900, Opus 69 and 70, constitute such a small part of his over that it's easy to overlook the significance. So I try to make an argument that we need to make even the insignificant significant again. And I think that that parallels what Grieg was doing. And I think that also goes back to literature. This is what people in literature were doing. In many cases, it was uncontroversial to to write in a cosmopolitan excuse me cosmopolitan style in literature at this point. But it was for for obvious reasons that you point out. It was still controversial. Um, when it comes to music, you know, he was supposed to be the good Norwegian. People wanted to see the Norwegian, the good Norwegian and the good Norwegian only. And I think he just by virtue of his personality uh, and his circumstances wanted something beyond that. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. One of the other things I appreciated about your book beyond learning about Greek was also your discussion on McDowell. So I'm an Americanist. He has always confused me because when I read uh, his, his, what he writes about music, on the one hand, he seems to be advocating for an American national style. And on the other hand, he's like, oh, nationalism, it's so shallow. And, you know, we need to, we need to find a different way. And, and he didn't even really seem to like some of the pieces that he wrote that um, seemed to me, at least from the outside, to be the most nationalist. Um, and your book, you really try to grapple with how to resolve this inherent tension in the way that he's talking about nationalism. And uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. You know, what does cosmopolitanism give to us to help us understand this seeming contradiction in the way that McDowell talks about his his own music and other people's music from uh, from America in this time period. Yeah, I mean, it's a contradiction upon contradiction because I'm arguing that it's not contradictory, the national and the international, but it's clear that that's the way audiences saw it back then. And the composers, McDowell and all the people that I chart here are not consistent over the course. I mean, who is? But they're not consistent in the way they use these terms. They're not necessarily consistent in what they're advocating for or what they're pushing back against. So you have this double bind, and of course, I think we're all aware at this point with many composers of this double bind that the only claim to fame was often through uh, the path of least resistance, which was to follow some sort of American paradigm. But that is the point of connection. Um, If we look at kind of the two dimensions that I use are the synchronic and the diachronic dimension in this book to show that Grieg and McDowell had similar challenges, which is to say the perceived authority in music lay somewhere else. And that was not just uh, some sort of idealism. I mean, that, that there's a dose of reality to that. Uh, America, for obvious reasons, did not have a very long history of music making in the same way that France and Germany did. So obviously, I think there's a bit of resentment perhaps behind that and maybe even bitterness. And for different reasons, Norway didn't have this history. I mean, that's that's not even controversial. What's controversial is what do we do about that? And why do we make people feel bad about that? So that ushers in this diachronic dimension that composers are always conscious of and audiences as well, which is to say, where do I fit in? What narrative describes me? Where where can I situate my personal story with these other narratives? I think what McGowan struggled was there was not this narrative that fit him. 
So he's left with this constantly pushing back and, and arguing in many cases, and it's hard to always know when to take him seriously and when to take him not seriously. Uh, it's clear that he wanted to get beyond the national, in many cases saw the national as something um, pejorative almost. But that's not what a lot of people uh, in America wanted either. And you have these tensions that uh, I'm sure you could probably speak to better than I could, Kristen. But in America, this this sense of ambivalence about what to do with a European legacy. And we've got Dwight writing uh, at mid-century that basically uh, an American aesthetic um, can only be built upon a German aesthetic or a certain type of German idealism. Uh, Emerson and Thoreau are translating literature from the original German. I mean, it's infused in our culture. So then you get this double bind. Well, what do you do? Do you try to rip this strain of, of Germanicism um, from our culture? Um, then you create a false reality that there hasn't been this mixing of cultures for so long. So do you deny that mixing of cultures for some sort of more purest strain? Um, it, it creates this exponential series of problems. And this is, just to tie it back to one of the connections I was making with with Grieg again, the problem of language. What they're striving for is an authentic or pure, to use a more problematic term, um, Norwegian language. But you've got hundreds of years of the Norwegian, the Danish dialects mixing together. So if you were to just go back to uh, a language or a dialect of Nor of Norway um, that preceded this Danish infusion, well, now you're dealing with a language that is impractical to someone like Grieg who grew up speaking the Dano-Norwegian. So if you take that as a metaphor for what McDowell had to deal with in America, do you deny that there's been this cross-pollination? I mean, that's just as fictitious as anything else to deny that there's been so many years of cross-pollination that quite um, readily, I think, did something good. And I think that's clearly, I mean, the influence of, of Wagner on McDowell and others is just unquestionable. So what do you do with the fact that you're both uh, attracted and repulsed by the same thing? <laughs> uh, what do you do about that? And um, I think that that was a big part of what McDowell was facing here too. And I think he was also one of those to just deal with a situation in which the audiences were not ready to um, perhaps digest what he was cooking. And that then led to bigger debates about progress. What does it mean to move forward, which maybe is a bigger issue that deserves discussion in and of itself. But we seem to, in every time, be concerned with progress and we seem to almost always take for granted that we we assume that progress is linear. And I think, going back to an even earlier question of yours, that definitely happens around the turn of the century. I remember the last turn of the century, right, as we were, we were ushering in the 21st century. There's this sense of progress, and you hear it in politicians. You see it just in our discourse, in our movies, in our entertainment. So as that that way to see progress, that, that linearity becomes stronger in American society as well. Um, what do composers do who are emphasizing more cyclical aspects and returning to older sources or older procedures? 
how are they going to be seen as progressive when that's what people were yearning for? I mean, that's an open-ended question that I, I don't know can be resolved. I think it's certainly one that faces us today. Well, one of the things that you touched upon in that answer, I think, in, in using the language of your book, is the tension between the local and the universal which um, absolutely just runs through American music in this time period and American criticism. You know, how, what is American music? They just talk about it all the time and they're sort of obsessed with it. And um, I, I think that um, in, the, in the book, you generally find that tension to be productive for uh, the composers that you're looking at, that, that thinking about the difference between those two things is, is helpful to them and comes, they come, have to come up with some interesting musical solutions to the, the tension between the local and music and the universal and music. But I wonder, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, is, is there a way in which that tension is also um, stultifying or causes people to sort of not know what to do, um, particularly, I would say, critics in American music had this problem where they couldn't resolve the tension, so they just couldn't do anything. Do, do you find that in your composers as well or, or not? I think... Um... I would have to answer your question probably with another question, which is to say, why do we find that to be a point of tension at all? What does it say about us that we feel that the local is in contradiction to the international? I mean, we definitely feel it in the 21st century and some of the pushback with globalization. Um, we definitely feel, even though we've been globalized now for <laughs> hundreds, if not thousands of years, I think you could make that argument. We live in a globalized economy and that's, that's nothing different from the Silk Road. Um, what, what value does someone find in, in localism or nationalism that is inward looking only? And for me, that comes to another term that has actually created many more research projects. And it's this sense that to be legitimate is to be autonomous, as though you're doing things on your own. Now, we know nobody does anything on their own. Everything comes from somewhere. But um, not to get off on a tangent, but we look at the history of the opera and this pushback to try to pretend that the French um, or the uh, Italian school didn't influence you. I mean, you would, that's what it is. You're pretending that they don't influence you. But of course, that's impossible to do in the arts, maybe in a way that you could do in language. And that, that's another thing that's more difficult. It's certainly something that changes over time. Um, we're certainly not appalled by Latin today the way we may have been appalled by the Latin root of our words. Um, although um, that certainly Granger was upset by that, and that's why he actually tried to purify his own language to take out the Latin roots, which just is another of his idiosyncrasies. But to come back to this issue of autonomy, that's probably something that really affected a lot of um, composers and writers. And I know I'm being really broad when I kind of uh, categorize all this together, but the way in which we in the United States wanted to do things on our own, and that's a sense of coming of age, uh, a sense of maturity, to use one of the words back there. And, oh my goodness, I think uh, something perhaps is, I don't directly address in the book until this last chapter, but the way in which we have to read all of these things alongside other developments and other disciplines like like Darwin and the, the, the misuse of Darwin in science and progress and the idea that we're going to do things uh, on our own. 
And of course, part of this also comes from the sense of wanting to improve one's own culture. And this is how we get into another whole mess very quickly after Greed's death of eugenics and after McDowell passes and the idea of wanting to, to fix our own. So one of the struggles, I think, with this tension is wanting to keep separate categories of identity that I think everybody realized were impossible to keep separate. Um, by virtue of the fact something as simple as that someone born in America can marry someone in France. What does that make the children? <laughs> and that brings up this question of hybridity that I, I laced throughout the entire book, the way in which hybridity, this mixing is sometimes uh, on a biological level seen as something good and something bad. And I think that comes back to this issue of culture, the idea that we don't want to mix for whatever reason. Um, our influences. And we want to pretend that there are these different fonts of inspiration and that we can kind of tap into these resources that literally are deep within our earth. And we can just pull out these resources that grow only on that land. And that, that just ignores the basic fact that we're still dealing with the same 12 tones and the same language that we've been using. So uh, it's a very problematic issue, that issue of marking and unmarking, marking your musical language, your musical style as belonging to you. At the same time, you're sharing the same characteristics as someone else, to point out the obvious. I mean, how many different countries can we say that the open fifth has been a marker of their identity, right? It's just, but it works and it works for those audiences. And that that's the issue, I think, that really confronted a lot of Americans is, um, this acute awareness of being on an international stage and measure and, and trying to measure and quantify against the neighbors um, in a way that was constantly uh, shifting, uh, sometimes week to week. Well, I think you're absolutely right about about what you've been saying, and particularly there's this sort of tyranny about the cult of creativity where you have to be the only one who has ever done this one thing and that's impossible. And um, there's a kind of marketing about uh, in music now around that kind of thing and has been for a long time, you know, certainly since the 19th century, that's, Absolutely. that's the sort of value that obviously all composers struggle with. Um, uh, and, you know, your three composers being, uh, one, you know, all composers deal with yes. that and all artists, I think, since the 19th century, for sure. Um, and you touched, touched upon, you've touched upon Granger several times in your answers. And I, and I wanted to dig a little bit more into him because unlike McDowell and Grieg, who I think um, ultimately have, at least from my perspective, a sort of positive way of thinking about this, you mm -hmm. know, um, they're trying to... Um, uh, sort of grapple with these big issues and figure out how to not only understand them as people, but also uh, within their music. But Granger takes a really dark turn and he goes from seeming to, I think, agree with Grieg and McDowell. Certainly he seems to have, uh, Grieg becomes more and more important to him uh, throughout his uh, life as a composer, but yet he moves into uh, what I, what I think you can only call white supremacy and, and a very particular, particularly virulent white supremacy around um, Anglo-Saxism and the Nordic uh, um, uh, identity, as he calls it. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how, why does this turn happen? You know, what, what goes, what changes throughout his life that he 
would um, move into this dark place? And, and then also, how does uh, he use this idea of cosmopolitanism? I'm sorry, I can't speak. Cosmopolitanism to uh, justify this change as well. Like he he continues to use that word, even though he seems to use it in a very different way. Yes, and this is something. It's something both problematic and unique to Granger and also not unique at the same time. One of the ways that this is often explained away is that, well, Granger was idiosyncratic and what he was doing, you know, is maybe a bit different and a bit weird. And, oh, you know, that's just Granger being Granger. And there's certainly a fair amount of that in his career uh, and in his life. But in my mind, that also downplays the utter mainstream quality of a lot of eugenic discourse, especially in the United States. And in this case, I think it's important to, to realize what scholars have now been writing about the last oh, two decades at least, that this issue of eugenics really is one that starts in America and then is sent to Europe. Um, and... Well, I mean, that, that gets perhaps more complex, and I, I don't want to, to put off a really important part of, of your question, which is, how does he get into this? So we talk about, in, in, in musicology all the time, and other disciplines, constructing identity. And I don't think that, could, that phrase or that term could be any more true than for someone like Granger, um, who spent a fair amount of his life, while he's alive, creating a museum about his life. I mean, who does that, right? It's just the weirdest thing. Uh, and I can't help but laugh even as I say that. He is so self-aware that he starts from a very early age to construct his identity. And then he gets to, I am not a psychologist, but I think he gets to a point that a lot of human beings go through in their life when they realize that the identity that they want for themselves is not the identity that they're born or however that is gauged. And it's very clear that the metric for Granger is a biological one. So it is emblematic of a shift in society at large by which the requisite, um, how should I say, the, the requisite um, way of getting into belonging, into the nation, is now not behavioral, but biological. It's not enough anymore to simply speak the language, which, by the way, uh, Stalin comes out with a pamphlet, I think it's in 1913, about what it is to be part of a country. And he's, you know, he basically prescribes six different things that are all behavioral, which is to say it's elective. You can, you can through your behavior, conform to be a member of that society. But what biology does is it changes that, and it makes it impossible, of course, to, to change where you belong. And this is the problem for Granger, who's born in Australia, uh, moves to England, and then at the outbreak of World War I, moves to America. He finds this, uh, for, for a variety of reasons I won't get into now, but he finds this, um, this 
bastion of 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 creative um um, I don't know what you want to call it, this wellspring in so many different Nordic sources. And here I'm going to use the term just like he does. He doesn't discriminate. He ignores the fact that Iceland has its own history, that Norway has its own history, that Denmark, of course, has its own history. He, he groups them all together. He assumes this homogeneous factor. And then in his mind, and here's the real problem, he sees that as though it's fixed, as though it hasn't changed over time. And that's one of the paradoxes that Alain Frogley and many other commentators have pointed out. Daniel Gregory Mason picks up on this in America. They're all assuming that this Nordic identity is somehow unchanged over time. Now, why that doesn't change, but everything else is eroding, gets into these deeper issues of progress and degeneration that were sweeping this transcontinental discourse at, um, at the same time. But I think Granger, from a very early age, um, finding this uh, early obsession, for whatever reason, we'll probably never know in Nordic culture, becomes upset with the fact, and he later says this, that his biology is not as good as he'd like it to be. So what does he do? He does everything that he can to construct an identity that um, kind of surpasses this biological prerequisite. And he starts to read Icelandic sagas in Icelandic from the time he's young. I mean, he teaches himself Icelandic. I've tried that and I failed miserably. Um, and so, again, this, this sense of purity here of blood is something he knows he can't have, um, even though we know that there is no such thing as a Nordic blood. Um, but um, And he marries a Swede and he tries to construct in a very careful and a very calculated way. Um, a Nordic identity for himself. And that's when he happens to stumble upon, I think here, it's just the um, coincidence of time. He stumbles upon the writings of eugenicists in the United States, people like Madison Grant. And this provides him with a perfect narrative that he's been looking for his whole life. And he says this in his lectures at Yale. You, I bet you many of you didn't understand the meaning of race um, before you still, you know, before I, I didn't know it myself before I came across Madison Grant's writing. Now I know what it is to be race. Um, and then, of course, that comes with its, it ushers in its own sense of hierarchy. And this is what he lives the rest of his life is carrying out in this very, if I could say, two-faced type of way where he's at one moment talking about universality and quoting Whitman and um, something I've written about a lot is this connection to democracy and getting everybody to participate, yet at the same time, trying to clean and cleanse an aspect of society that is shameful. And that is to say influences that do not have some sort of roots in Scandinavia. Well, yeah, it was uh, really quite disturbing to read some of the stuff that he was writing. It's it's quite amazing to see him, you know, go further and further down into that uh, rabbit hole for sure. Yes. Um, you've sort of uh, you you've uh, um, talked a little bit about this, but I want to um, maybe as a last question. Um, Look to what you um, talk about in the last chapter of your book or the conclusion. Um, you know, a lot of uh, historians today are calling 
the time we're living in right now, a second Gilded Age or the new Gilded Age. And certainly as someone who has read a lot of turn of the 20th century newspapers, I completely agree with that because it's the issues we're dealing yes. with are so similar. You know, it's immigration, it's race, it's gender. Um, and, and of course, we have this enormous uh, wealth uh, gap or inequality um, uh, in that sense as well. And um, uh, you sort of touch on that, too. And I, and, and I want to sort of uh, talk a little bit about what you see as what are the lessons that maybe we can learn or at least glean from how people in the first Gilded Age talked about these issues as we come around here in the second Gilded Age to be dealing with the same issues again, really using a lot of the same language and also having the sort of same political dynamic of a group of progressives who are trying to change society for the more equitable in one way or another and um, and a group that has this very strong nativist nationalist discourse that's really pushing against that at the same time. Sure, boy. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty startling that we are now two decades into the 21st century when it still feels like we're just at the cusp of it. <laughs> um, these problems linger and um, certainly I do think there is a parallel uh, to Granger, although I, I want to be very careful that certainly um, to just say that there's a parallel is to overshadow things like the influence of the world wars, which uh, hopefully we'll never have to deal with again. But your point is certainly a valid one. And I think there are a few takeaways. Um, one is certainly one that we've been discussing, and that is rhetoric and the way that we use words and language. And in many cases, it's the very imprecision of terms that makes them powerful in narratives and powerful in manipulating moving people. If I say I want to make something good again, but I don't tell you what that is, that actually becomes a very unique source of power because then you determine what it is and we go on talking like we both are on the same page when it's clear that we're not. And if I ever were to define what it is to be good and how I'm going to make something better, um, if I were to define that too much, I would uh, immediately um, perhaps eclipse or, or exclude part of my following. So it's the ambiguity of language and it's the ambiguity of terms like nationalism and cosmopolitanism that have received so much critical attention, but the problems don't go away. And I think sometimes, and perhaps I felt this in my career, we get tired of talking about nationalism. We get tired of talking about cosmopolitanism. We feel like that book has already been written, but the problems don't go away. So I think that's the first issue. The second issue is what I've learned from a, a figure like Grieg and McDowell is this, the need to create critical distance. And that, I think, is also a big part of what it means or what it meant, at least in their time, to be cosmopolitan. That at the moment, we are seeking attachment. At the very moment that we need attachment to each other, which is an absolute necessity in, in any sort of organization. But Grieg needed attachment to his Norwegian colleagues, and McDowell was yearning for that as uh, a professor of a, of a music here in America. As we're seeking attachment, they remind us that we must also have critical detachment from the very same sources. And that's very difficult because this is where I think scholarship just comes up short in a lot of cases. This is personal, and this is decide, uh, decided personally and through emotion. 
And the things we get attached to, certainly, I think psychologists and sociologists have, have really discussed this perhaps in more successful ways. We tend to become uh, attached to things in very irrational ways. And that's especially true when it comes to objects. And once we form that attachment, it is almost impossible to unmoor ourselves from that. It is very, very difficult. And as scholars, we always run that risk of fetishizing the things that we, we don't like. And uh, like, there's so many case studies of, of American music as, and the way that race has played out that would certainly speak to that. And so I think that also the third point I would say is this issue of why do we value the hierarchies that we value? One that still lingers with us, to go back to what I said in the last question, is autonomy. Why do we see that as a good thing? And why do we see that in certain areas of our life, but not in others? Uh, which is to say, um, if we're worried about the global spread of a virus, I think most people would be willing to take uh, an antidote regardless of what country it originated in. But why are we afraid to do that? Or why do we have anxiety about doing that when it comes to culture? When we know deep down inside, at least I hope most people know, um, that the sources of that culture have never been pure in the way that we want them to be pure sometimes. So learning to um, understand uh, language, to respect that words matter uh, in a way that Foucault has outlined for sure, uh, understanding and creating this um, critical reflection from the things that we want to attach ourselves to. And then thirdly, trying to understand why we value what we value and, and always being open to changing that. And that, I think, is the ultimate struggle that Grieg died not achieving, uh, hoping that, of course, Granger would do it when, Grieg was, when Granger excuse me, was, was very quick to do the opposite, which was to um, shut off the valve of inclusion and, and open up the faucet really to exclusion everywhere that he could. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion about your book. And before we say goodbye, I would love to find out what you are working on now since you have finished up this enormous project. Sure. Well, uh, thanks for asking. One of the themes that I think is in common between this book and some of my current work is intersections uh, and music and literature. So one of the things I'm looking at are the intersections, particularly in the United States, of medical literature and musical criticism and looking at systems of shared metaphors and um, looking at what I call compound liminality, the way in which there's this transition going on between sources of authority and the way in which the medical community and um, scientists in general are, are looking at certain issues parallels a lot of the metaphors we see in someone like Henry Fink, um, who also wrote about a lot of figures in this book. So it's not completely unrelated. And I'm deeply, deeply interested in the, uh, looking at through a lot of these issues through the lens of critical disability studies and what that has brought to the fore. Because I think issues like uh, autonomy, personhood, uh, a lot of these issues are, are deeply, deeply embedded even in what we might see as political issues when it comes to nationalism and cosmopolitanism. So that's what I'm, I'm doing now. And uh, I've enjoyed um, really looking at a lot of these sources and in many cases equally dismayed by what I'm finding, um, especially going back to your last point, the way in which the salience of these arguments uh, are, are still with us. And I think in many cases, um, if we're going to dismantle some of these narratives, if we are, and I'm not quite so 
I'm not quite sure that we we are going to, but um, I, I can barely understand the past, so I, I can't predict the future. But I think we we have to understand what makes these arguments work together. So there, I, I'm trying to map out why they're arguing what they're arguing, and and to find significance in the correspondence. But as I did in this book, trying to understand the divergence and the failures and what we might learn from those failures of the medical community and the musical community. Well, that sounds fascinating. And I'm certainly looking forward to seeing what you do with all of those amazing ideas that you're, you're trying to understand. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. I'm Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. And I've been talking to Dr. Ryan Weber about cosmopolitanism and transatlantic circles in music and literature. Thank you.